So we are going to be talking about a fascinating topic today, um, a topic which no doubt some of us have thought about, some of us have even heard some perspectives on, but I doubt that most people have spent a little bit of time, enough time, trying to appreciate what is really going on. This it starts off with a very famous story. The story goes that there was a, a certain man who was talking to the Kotzka Rebbe when he was a young boy, and he wanted to give him a little bit of fire hair. You know how this goes, you know, in Shul you have this cross-pollination of age groups, and there's always somebody who's speaking to the young kids, and it's, you know, it's a, it's a, it's a wonderful thing. So this man asks the Kotzka Rebbe and says, Yingel, which Masechta is Pesach found in? So he says, of course, Pesachim, which Masechta? is Sukkot found in. Sukkot, which Masechta is Rosh Hashanah found in. Rosh Hashanah, which Masechta is Purim found in. He says Megillah. He says, which Masechta is Yom Kippur found in. Yuma, which Masechta is Shavuos found in. And he says, Shavuos. He says, ah, I got you. You see, Shavuos is not about the festival Shavuos. It's about the oaths, which is also called the Shavuos. So the Kotz Rebbe famously said, on Davchof Beis Amod Beis, it describes that if a person makes a Shavuos, to transgress a Torah prohibition, that person's Shavuah is invalid because HaKadosh Baruch Hu already had you sworn in, so to speak, to his system. You can't make an oath on top of his system. So you see, it does talk about Shavuahs because Sinai was, was, was from that. So that's, that, that's how the story goes with the, the, the confrontation of the Kotz Now, here's the funny thing. Um, the question he never asked the Kotzkarebbe, as a young boy, was, which Masechda is Chanukah found in? Where was Chanukah? And the reason is, is because there is no Maseches Chanukah. Not only is there no Maseches Chanukah, if you go back one step, there is no Megillas Chanukah, for that matter, as well. You say, yes, of course there is the Megillas Chashwanayim, the Sefer Maccabim 1, the Sefer Maccabim 2. We have all kinds of things, and that may be true, but that's all what's in what's called the Apocrypha. It did not make it to the canon of Tanakh, canon that's worth one end. Actually, it's really two ends. Not canon that you shoot things out of, but canon as in terms of the corpus of material that's called Tanakh. Tanakh was closed a number of years beforehand at the end of prophecy. And therefore, anything which was written after that was not inspired divinely and may have been very fascinating historically, but is not part of Tanakh and was not included. That makes sense. Okay. But the funny thing is, is why would it be that such an important holiday, which takes up so much time in our calendar, if you think about it, it's the longest single holiday in the Jewish calendar. Even Sukkot itself is only seven days. And then you have Simchas Torah and Shemina Aseris, it's its own holiday. But the longest single holiday in the Jewish calendar is Hanukkah, eight full days. And nonetheless, there's not even a single Masechta. Yes, it is wedged into a few daf in Shabbos there in Bamem Adlikim about lighting candles in Shabbos. There's a two daf which deal with Hanukkah over there, but you would expect a little more coverage for something which is so, um, so much part of our, our, our life and our, our cycle as well. This is, that's the question that we're going to have to deal with. So there are, there are those who say, you see, it's completely left out of the Mishnah, which is absolutely not true. It is in the Mishnah. It is in the Mishnah. The Mishnah talks about Hanukkah numerous times. Can anybody think of an example where Hanukkah is talked about in the Mishnah? Just off the top of the, uh, your heads. It's a number of times that, it, that, it, that Hanukkah appears in the Mishnah. But always tangentially. Always as an additional piece. So as an example, let's take a look at some of those Mishnahs where it appears. The Mishnah Bikurim talks about when is the time frame you are allowed to bring Bikurim. At the end of the Mishnah it says that it, um, starting from there, the middle of the Mishnah, the Mishnah says you can bring from Atzeres. What's Atzeres? 
Shavuos to Chag. What's Chag? Sukkos. You bring the Bikurim and you do Kriya. Um, you, meaning you say the statement found in Pashas Kisavoy. But from there afterwards, so now in the period that we're in, one day left, essentially, from Sukkos till Chanukah, then you're allowed to bring, but you don't do the Kriya. It's not the appropriate time. It's no longer the first fruit season time. And if you would have been saying, you can still say the Kriya now. So clearly, Chanukah is on the calendar. Moreover, when you get to Rosh Hashanah, we are told that there are certain times when the Shluchim, Okay, this is not, not refer, referring to any movement in Judaism's um, emissaries, but we're talking about the, 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 the people who are responsible for conveying the message to the, to the outlying communities in the diaspora as to when the calendar was set. This was before Ezra's Torah had set up its shop about sending out the printed calendars. But in the day where it needed to be done, Alpi, the Sanhedrin Agadol, and before the days of email and, and mass publication, so they would send out messengers to notify people about certain months. When is, the, in fact, Rosh Chodesh? So what were the months they sent out? So the Mishnah tells us in Rosh Hashanah, Al Shisha Chodeshim Shluchim, you had some six of the twelve months. They, the Shluchim went out because of a need. Al Nisan Mipnei Pesach, Al Av Mipnei HaTanis, Al Elul Mipnei Rosh Hashanah, Al Tishrei Mipnei Katakonos HaMoadim, Al Kislev Mipnei Chanukah. So in this month of Kislev was one of the months that the Shluchim went out to tell everybody we've arrived Kislev started so they can start working out when to start lighting candles on the 25th. So again, very much part of the calendar. Another example, the, 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 there is a law that you cannot make a tainis, a fast day for terrible community woes on certain days. One of those days, then in the third source in the Mishnah Tainis is, and goes in Tainis, you can't make a fast day during Hanukkah. Those are eight days that are out of bounds. Um, moreover, just to give you a, a sense of how, how, how replete the Mishnah is with this, now, we, we, we're told that when it comes to the regular Kriya Satora on Shabbos, you don't, make a, you don't make an interruption except on certain days where you bring in another Kriya Satora. So on Chanukah, as we know, you have an extra additional laning on, 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 uh, when it comes to Chanukah. Another Mishnah, two, two Mishnahs later in Megillah. What's the laning we do on, the, on Chanukah? The Mishnah prescribes the end of Parashas Nasai. Banasiyim. And, another, and finally, in Moed Cotton, it describes We're talking about the, the, the level of a eulogy that can occur on Chanukah. Certain aspects of eulogy can occur, certain aspects cannot occur as well. And most famously, there's a, description, a discussion in Hilchos Nezikin. That let's say that you have a store, and in the store are ca- a Chanukah can, uh, sorry, uh, is let's say I have a, um, a bracket with, which has a torch and it's in my store. And then another fellow has a camel walking past, and the camel is Toan Pishtan. Pishtan is carrying flax. The flax enters into the airspace of the store, catching light from the person's bracket of uh, their, their torch. Now the, the fire continues on the back of this camel and burns down the next three stores. So the Gemara says, the Mishnah says, that the owner of the camel is responsible because it's overload, it's, it's bigger then usual load went into the airspace of the store and takes light, so it was a responsibility of the owner of the camel. Whereas it says if the light was on the outside, so let's say the person who had the store had the, the light, the torch outside the store, and then it lit, then it's the responsibility of the person who had the torch, because after all, what it was in the public domain where the torch was. The, and the Mishnah says, and the exception to this is on Hanukkah, if the reason why the light caught the camel was because I put my menorah outside my store on, uh, uh, on the main thoroughfare in town and the camel then took light from that, 
that's all right. That, that's not the responsibility of the store owner or the house owner because you know what? Everybody's allowed to light outside. That's, and therefore you have to be more careful with where your camels go on those eight days of the year. So is Hanukkah in the Mishnah? The answer is absolutely yes. It appears everywhere in the Mishnah. The question is, is, but why would it not be educationally? Surely it would make more sense rather than a tangential, infrequent mention to have a certain chapter dedicated, or a at least a chapter dedicated to the idea of Chadukah and give us a little more of a wholesome idea rather than a, uh, an innuendo here and innuendo there and have a corpus of material dedicated to it. Very famous question and there are many famous answers. The most famous answer to this is, does anybody remember, anybody think about what's the most famous answer to this that we, we hear in the back of my minds? Wait, it's not, wait, it's not yes. Ah, good. So many people say it relates to Rabbi Yehuda Hanasi. It relates to the author or the redactor of the Mishnah whose name was Rabbi Yehuda Hanasi. Let's just put ourselves into, uh, into our contextual experience. When did Yehuda, Rabbi Yehuda Hanasi live? Sorry, you were... Good, exactly. So Yoranasi was Davidic. Let's, uh, let's, uh, let's understand, let's put ourselves into the space. When was the Mishnah published? Around what year? Around the year 200, the case, the turn of the third century of common era was when the Mishnah was, was published. And perhaps there was an agenda, if the suggestion is, of Rabbi Yoranasi when publishing the Mishnah, in fact, to omit the Mishnah, to omit Hanukkah from the Mishnah. What would his agenda be? So the, the famously it appears in the Sefer Tami Amin Hagim, where it says in source eight, uh, source nine, I mean tough tough mem zayin tam shenes Chanukah on Yizkar klal the Mishnah the miracle of Chanukah is not mentioned in the Mishnah yes the existence of Chanukah is mentioned but not the miracle why the Vishe Rabenu Hakadosh that's Rabbi Yehuda Nasi Misadar Mishnah he Mizera David Amelech Alav Shalom he was from the chain of Davidic line the Neis Chanukah Nasali Day Beis Chashmonaim. And it was done through the facilitators of the nace were the Chashmonaim. They were not from the chain of David. Where, where, were, they, where were they from? Which line? They were Kohanim. They were from the Levi line. And this was um, seen as a negative thing from Rabbeinu HaKadosh. And he quotes the Goen, the Baal Chassan Sofer, who suggests this idea. Um, so now notice, by the way, he's, he's trying to sidestep the idea of personal vendetta here. So he adds the words. Rach HaKadosh. Meaning to say, it was Rabbi Yehuda Nasi when conveying the future Torah Shaval of Klal Yisrael wanted to avoid this because it was not seen as part of the, as part of the, the, the extent of, of the idea. Now the problem, the, the, well, let's, before we get to problems with this, but this actually kind of dates back to an earlier idea. Let's, let's look at the early idea for, for a moment. Here's, here, uh, the, the, it actually comes down to a very important rule which is set out by Yaakov Avinu. Yaakov Avinu looks, looks to his, his 12 sons and he wants to give them the blessing before his, before his patera. And he when turning to his fourth son, now remember, sons 1, 2, and 3 did not get such a great blessing. right? So Ruvain got, uh, got admonishment, Shimon and Levi got more of a curse. Yehud was the first one he really turned to and gave a bracha and he says the following words, Lo yasur shevet miuda. The scepter will never leave Yehuda. So Shevet doesn't just mean to say a walking stick, right? Shevet actually refers to the scepter of kingship. So he, it's, Yaakov seems to make this observation, whether it's a description or a prescription about Yehuda, that the Shevet, the scepter, will not leave Yehuda. And the Ramban, in a very famous monologue um, on the, this, this pasuk, says towards the end of the essay the following observation in source 11. 
This is why the Hasmoneans were so punished. They decided to rule in the second temple. They were incredibly pious individuals. Let's not forget, if it weren't for their course of action, we would have not had Torah today. However, they were punished terribly. Why? The four elder sons of the Zarkain. Who, who, who is the Zarkain referring to? Matziel. So remember, how, how many sons did he have? He had five sons, four of whom took the, took the, the, the throne in succession. With all their success, with everything they contributed, they ultimately all died, they all perished. And the, the punishment arrived at such a degree, it was so intense that the Gemara records in Baba Basra that the last daughter of the Hashmonai dynasty, whose name was Maryam, who married a person by the name of Herod, says as she stands upon the roof, says the following, Anybody who claims to have lineage from the Hasmoneans is in fact a servant and then she jumped from the roof. And that was the last of the Hasmoneans. Every last one of them was wiped out and the punishment was so intense, says the Ramban, they were all wiped out because of this sin. What sin? That they took the throne. They took the throne they should not have. Why? The priests, it's almost like there's different arms of government in Torah. There's, there's a king, and then there's a Kohen, and there's a Navi. Different arms of jurisdiction. And the, when the priests took the, the, the kingship as well, they were seen as too much power in one arm of governance. Let's just appreciate this just to understand what that actually looked like. One of the most powerful Hashmonaian kings was a, name, a man by the name of Yohanan Kohen Godel, or John Hyrcanes, as, uh, um, as, as he was called. Very, very powerful person. So powerful, in fact, that he extended the borders of Israel, or Judea, the province of Judea, northwards and southwards, and is in fact the only Jew, the only Jew in all of Jewish history, who, who, who is acclaimed with having conquered other nations and forcibly converted them to Judaism en masse. Never, ever, never occurred again. You hear this in Christianity and Islam all the time. There was one time it occurred in Judaism, this was under John Hyrcanes, um, Yochanan Kohen Gadol, and in fact you can go visit today. If you go down to Beit Guvrin today, which is the area of Tel Maresha, all the distractions, when you do those excavations, those are not Jewish houses, those are Edomian houses, those were the Edomites who were forcibly converted. The reason why all their houses were covered, the 5,000 caves were covered in dust then, was because they were given a very simple um, binary suggestion, uh, well, option. Either you convert to Judaism or leave, and they left. And that's what happens. So there, there was an ex incredibly expansive time there was a lot of friction between the sages and the Hasmoneans because the Hasmoneans had too much power. The Hasmoneans took priesthood and kingship. That's a little bit too much in one basket. Says the Ramban, that's the reason why they, they ultimately perished. It was, it was an unsustainable model and internally there was a lot of fighting, internal murder and, uh, in later generations of the Hasmoneans. There was, a, there was conflicts between different arms of the family leading ultimately to Herod's conquest of the family and then the alignment with Rome. So this is, this is what the Ramban says. The Chassam Sofa takes us one step further because of all that complexity and all that bad blood. Rabbi Yehuda Nasi, when codifying this law of Hanukkah, omits it from the Mishnah because of the complexity that followed. Yes, Nachman.
Why would they have been called Hasidei El Yomid? Ah, very good. <laughs> very good. So it's important to appreciate the, the, this. And, and, that, and that's perhaps one of the questions that we could ask on this whole, this whole, this whole program or this whole suggestion uh, that is that's attributed over here to, in the time of Megalim, to the Chas and so forth. And that is, is that in the end of the day, you need to bifurcate. You need to separate between the miracles that happened and, what, and the aftermath that occurred afterwards. <laughs> and as the Ramban points out, Chasidei Elyon, if it weren't for Matisyahu and his sons, <laughs> we'd all be a Greek culture today. So let's appreciate the fact that the miracle is separate to the, uh, to, to the, to the continuation. And therefore, one of the questions we could ask is, is, who cares what happened afterwards? It was a miracle. The facilitators of the miracle have been very complicated people throughout Jewish history, and the Chashmonaim were not the only ones to facilitate complex miracles. We still celebrate them. Right, so it doesn't make sense to say because of in the, the following centuries, therefore everything else was poisoned retroactively. That doesn't make sense. That's one of the questions we could ask on this. There are other questions we could ask on this as well. And that is, is that the kingship of, uh, of Shimon, who was one of the complicated leaders of the Chashmonaim, was many years afterwards, right? When, this, when the complexity was not immediate, it was many years afterwards as well. Um, other questions you could ask is it is true that Rabbi Yehuda Nasi did come from the Davidic line, but if you go back in the, 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 the chronology and you go back in the actual family tree, and Jews are very into family trees. Yechus is one of the biggest currencies in Judaism still today. So you go back in his family tree, and it turns out that he's only related to David Amelech through his mother's side, which means he wasn't even an heir to the throne in terms of, in terms of direct lineage. And if you want to go back even further, he comes from Shvatia, which was actually another wife of David Amelech, not Bathsheba. So he's not even of the, of the, uh, of your called the kingly uh, the, the line which had the rights to the throne in the first place. But to also say that Rabbi Yehuda Nasi was influenced by what seems to be very much a family rift is, is also, again, is, seems to be a little, bit, a little bit strange. Moreover, if he was part of the priestly line, where did, where, where, who was Rabbi Yehuda Nasi's most famous line of predecessors in the Mishnahic period? Hillel. Hillel. Right, that the reason why Hillel was, in fact, the, the, the patriarch of the Messiah family. So that means to say Gamliel and then Shimon. Gamliel, Shimon, Gamliel, Shimon, right? So that, that line leading to Rabbi Yudanasi. But let's, let's remember, how do we light candles on Hanukkah today? Like who's Minag? Like Beis Hillel's Minag, of lighting upwards, not lighting downwards. So it seems that Hillel was quite comfortable talking, debating, and observing Hanukkah. So to say that Rabbi Yudha Nasi, who was a great-great-grandson, was not willing to incorporate the Mishnah, while Hillel was clearly observing and actually telling us how to observe it, seems to be a little bit of a stretch. So there are many questions on this theory. So in, in lieu of that, I'd like to, to address, perhaps to make three other suggestions as to why it is not in the Mishnah. Okay, so we'll start, we'll start with, I think, the, 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 I, would, I would say the weakest, but the but a fascinating um, of these ideas. And that is that the, the Mishnah does not just omit Hanukkah, it omits other corpuses of Jewish material that you would have been surprised at that are not included. Can anybody think of another example of an entity in Halacha which is almost completely absent from the Mishnah, not only in the fact that it doesn't have its own Masechta, but it is not really given um, the space. What is another example of this? It, you, you, you'd be so surprised. <laughs> But it, it's, it's another one of these examples which is embedded into another Masechta in the Gomorrah but not found in the Mishnah. Anybody familiar? The halachas of what's called Hilchos Stam. What does Stam refer to? It's an acronym. Sefer Torah, Tefillin, and Mezuzah. Which Masechta is that to be found in? In Menachos. In Menachos, but it is not in the Mishnah. 
There's a reference to it in the Mishnah, and then the Gemara spends most of its time expanding that. So at the beginning of the fourth parak of Menachos, which is where the study of Hilchos Stam, Sefer Torah Tzvi and Mezuzah is found, the Rambam makes a comment in the, in the Perusha Mishnah trying to address this question. Why, why did Rabbi Yodanasi leave out such an important section of Halacha? By the way, what's another ex- example of something else which is also left out? Tzitzis is also part of this, good, that's, that's, that's where it's referenced. Another part of this is Hilchos Geiros. just want to put out that Hilchos Geiros is also submerged. Okay, we'll have to figure out why these areas of halacha were omitted, and maybe there's a common theme. The Ramam suggests the following observation. The beginning of the fourth Berak of Menachos, take a look at source 13. We're going out of order here. So he says in the Ramam Pirush Mishnah, uh, at the beginning of the fourth Berak of Menachos, Mishnah davar miyuchad, it wasn't given its own space, to include their laws. I think, says the Rambam, Prat He says, everybody knew about it. Everybody was on the same page. It was so well known. It was so universal. There was no need to even address it. Nobody had any concerns, wonder, or, or, or questions. And that's why you see there's no Masechta dedicated to prayer. <laughs> we don't pray. Prayer is not part of Judaism. No, it's so much part of Judaism, says the Rambam, that you don't need to have its own Masechta. And that's why are all officially omitted because it's so well known. Perhaps, and there's a, an a article written in Apelles by Dov Nachum Horowitz who ob- makes this observation and he says that maybe the same thing is true of Hanukkah. After all, Hanukkah occurred mid-range in the history of the Second Temple and it is obvious that, that, that Hanukkah was so well observed then and even post the destruction of the Temple that perhaps because it was most recent, because it was so much a part of life, therefore it didn't require its own sechta. Now, um, this is what the Rambam suggests. I still find it very difficult to, to appreciate this, certainly when it comes to Hanukkah, because there was debate around Hanukkah. We see even in the Gemara, there was a debate between Basil and Beishamai as to the candles going up, candles going down, Mahadrin, 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 all different tiers of, of keeping Hanukkah. So you would expect there was to be, be more, but the Ramam is saying it was so obvious, it was so much a given that it wasn't, it wasn't included as well, which, is, which explains these particular areas of Halakha. Okay, this is, this, is, this is the suggestion that the Rambam makes in the Pirush Mishnah, so we can extend it potentially to Hanukkah as well. I'd like to, 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 to go in the opposite direction, um, rather than, than what the Rambam says. And the opposite direction is to be found in the, the writings of, um, um, of um, the Yesoid HaMishnah Varichta. This is Rav Margolios. Um, Rav Margolios wrote prolifically, and he actually had a, uh, we'll call it, bigger picture perspective. He wrote a lot about bigger perspectives of editing overall per, um, um, of the development of Torah Shoppe, he writes extensively. Um, and one of the observations he makes um, is, is yeah, and this actually is, um, is I, I put it out of order, so I, uh, I, I, I apologize. I put the, the, the clippings that I took out of his Sefer out of order in Source 12. Um, we're going to look at the second last paragraph um, first. His observation is, is the following. Um, you, you see the paragraph which begins with, Avalim Tsoi Hasiba. That's the second last paragraph. I'm going to start three lines into that, four lines into that, where he says the following words, V'nuchal l'sha'er. 
we are, it is possible to uh, to assess or to to uh, um, assume ki bismanahu gam toras ayudim his anyana es hanetzivut. It is possible to suggest that the powers that be at the time of the writing of the Mishnah was of great interest to the powers that be. Let me ask you a question. Who are the powers that be at the writing of the Mishnah in the year 200? Rome. The Romans. The Romans were very interested in reading what Rabbi Huda Nasi had to, had to be writing down. Why? All these oral traditions which have been trans- transmitted from generation to generation, all this oral tradition attracted a lot of suspicion in the ranks of the Romans. And they were interested in finding out what stepped over the boundary of something which was religious to something else. What was the something else they were concerned about? Political. Why were they concerned about uh, political underpinnings or writings in the Torah of the Jews, in the oral Torah? Because rebellion. And why were they concerned about rebellion? Because those Jews just don't stop, right? <laughs> in the, that's what led to the destruction of the Besamekdash, was a rebellion of the Jews. And then again, 65 years later, in the year 130, the second rebellion of the Jews, uh, under, the, under the auspices of Shimon Bar Kochba. And now, just in the decades following that, the Romans say, we don't want the dissidents to be writing in their religious materials anything which could smack of rebellion. Makes sense. And now, up till now, at this point in time, yes, there's a Torah Shabbat Chsav. And the Torah Shabbat Chsav had access to, because it had already been translated into Greek by Ptolemy a number of years beforehand. But the piece they did not have access to was the oral Torah. So when Rabbi Yadah Nasi, who had a little bit of, uh, he was an extremely rich and successful Jew, which enabled him at a time of calm in the Roman um, uh, uh, where the Hadrianic persecution, the, the decrees were waning, enabled him to gather together the people necessary to redact the Mishnah. Well, yes, at that point in time, the Romans said, well, we're going to take a very quick read, a very careful read of what you're writing, because if anything smells like the writings of Shimon Bar Kochba in the oral law, we're going to be very careful about that. And therefore he says, to, now we're skipping upwards, which is actually really downwards, to the paragraph which says, V'acharei, V'acharei, since he knew that his books would be very carefully read, be read by those who are outside of the auspices of Judaism, and it would be put to trial before the, the, the court in Rome. This is why he omitted certain very important aspects of Torah. David That's why he's very careful to write anything about Mashiach, the arrival of the Messiah. Mashiach and David, and he came from the, the line of David. He was very careful about that. And that's why. Says Rav, Mar- Rav Margarlios, Chanukah was not written in the Mishnah. But Oil Asher Lehilchos Purim, Kavu Masechem Yucheres. Purim has his own Masechta Megillah. It's huge, right? Shezeru Lasher Kol Elu, Kol Keilu Hayu Lemoiras Ruach Haromayim, Shechoshvum Kinyanim Politiim, 
חגיגת הניצחון הלאומי ותקוות החופשיוסוי. It smacks of the idea of nationalism. It smacks of the idea of revolution, the idea of overthrowing the terrible foreign power which demands taxes. And he says that kind of celebration was probably not the right thing to put into the Mishnah. As replete as our practice is, that's not going to make it to the written law because of the overseers and surveyors from the Romans. Yes? Is it possible that you could use the same explanation the Megillus Hashmanoim was kept out? They could always say, oh, what, there was a text. They said, yeah, but we don't, that's, we don't, we don't recognize this. Very possibly, again, okay, so the, the, but the, even have the Hebrew. it's very possible. It's just the, the only thing about the Rebina Sashonim is, again, that you can explain why the, it's not in Tanakh because prophecy ended. And anyway, you said they were a prophet afterwards. We knew where they were coming from, right? So, although the, Josephus claims he was a prophet, but, uh, but they were, uh, afterwards it was clear, there was a clear division where people were no longer receiving prophecy. So we can say it was out of the, uh, the canon. But we don't even have, they didn't even make an effort to the, yeah, because it's apocryphal. So the, the, right. the Gomorrah, the Torah Shabbat has a specific attitude to the apocrypha. It was seen as dangerous and should, should not be included. You're right. Um, and that could be that attitude in general. But the reason why it's not in Tanakh, that's easier to understand why Rebbe didn't include the Mishnah so many centuries later. That's, that's the big problem. But this, this over here. But you're right. They're distancing themselves from anything to do with this. Um, and that, this, this seems to be the, one of the fascinating reasons. Oh, interesting. So Purim is not seen as an overthrow of the state. In fact, Purim is, it seems to be the alignment of Jews and their, and, and their uh, you know, foreign culture. Esther arrives, and it happens to be the, if you read Purim, and you should, by the way, read Purim with this sensitivity as well, because remember that the Persians are also reading the Megillah. Okay, so, uh, and that, that, the, that the, when, when the Gemara says, is a chashver shemelech tipesh, or is a melech chacham, um, the, the Gemara is essentially asking, how satirical is the Megillah? Right, is, is Achashosh really the bad person? It's hard to know because Esther couldn't even say that. Just understand that. Right? So we, we're left for, to, to the subtext to understand where Achashosh works out. The evil person in the Megillah is clearly Haman, but Haman is seen as an anomaly, which Achashosh therefore wipes out, and Achashosh can be seen as the hero, at least in one reading of, of the Megillah as well. Just appreciate that, that, that context as well. That, that doesn't interfere too much because it wasn't a nationalistic calling back to the homeland to the mother, to the, to the fatherland, that this is now seen as, a, as, a, as a, an episode that occurs in the diaspora. The Romans are totally fine with that. But the idea of this idea of a foreign power coming from Europe that comes in and is overthrown um, in a series of battles and re sovereignty is regained and Jerusalem is, uh, is rebuilt, that, that's seen, seen as too much. That's what Rabbi uh, Yudhanasi says in this version. Very, very t telling idea. This is almost the opposite of, of the idea that's so replete. In fact, it's, it may be replete in practice, but it's not in, in print. That's what Rabbi Yudhanasi was very careful about as well. So the truth is, is that there aren't so many parts of the Gemara that refers to the savior of the, of the Christians. Um, there are a few areas, and they were in fact taken out by the censor for most of the part. But um, so, the, you know, first of all, yeah, it's very minimal. And number two is, is that when the Romans became ascendant, those pieces of the Gomorrah really sort of dis uh, disappeared, except in some, some manuscripts which you have today. But the typical printed version of Vilna doesn't, doesn't have it for the same reason as well. Um, so which, which actually comes back to, I think, th this answer is a technical answer if you think about it. Because what it's really saying is that there was a, the, this, the, the external or the internal censorship was what led to the way that Hanukkah arrives in its, in its print form. I think it's deeper than that. It's much, it's much more profound than simply um, Rabbi Yudhanasi's sensitivities to the relationship with the Romans. I think there's something much 
much more profound afoot. And the Gemara actually references this. And this is the idea that actually this entire share is about. Okay, so let's, let's, let's try to dig ourselves into this idea. We looked at three ideas so far. Idea number one is the idea that Yudha Nasi um, was, was expressing that idea of the dislike of the Chashmonaim taking the rule. There are questions that abound on that. The idea that it was so replete that it wasn't necessary. And the idea that the censorship of the Romans being more careful about nationalistic um, aspirations was what led to the eclipsing of Hanukkah. But there's a fourth idea, and I think this idea is, is something which is worth giving a lot of thought to. And this, I think, is much more profound. This is a much more profound idea, which is not just a response to others, but really actually an, an inherent perspective. The, uh, there's so many different places to start from this, but I'd like to start with um, a Gomorrah, which uh, appears in Meseches. Yomon Daf Lamates, or in Chav Tesman, Aleph in Source 17. So we're going to do the start from the second, the, the, um, the, the, the really the um, third line in. Omer Rabbi Asi, Lomon Nimshala Esther Lashachar. Why was Esther called Shachar? By the way, where, where is Esther called Shachar? Dawn. Because in Tehillim, Tehillim the Tehillim, which is La'ayelet HaShachar, is understood to refer to, to Esther, right? Okay, good. Uh, for those, those who have Ayelet in the families. Um, so, uh, so, so, I, so, why is she called the Shachar? to tell you, Ma Shachar Sof Kalalayla, Af Esther Sof Kalanisim. Esther is the end of the night, and Purim was the end of all miracles. Now, that's an interesting observation. You think it's the other way around. That's just as a question for everybody. Why would night be akin to miracles and day be akin to a lack of miracles? Question. Okay. But nonetheless, she's the end of all the, 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 the miracles. So I'm going to ask the obvious question. What's the question? What about Hanukkah? <laughs> the Gemara says, V'ha'i ka Hanukkah. There's Hanukkah after, after Esther. She can't be considered the Shachar, the dawn, the end of the, the, the daybreak on miracles. So the, the Gemara says, Nitna lichtov um, that we're only referring to those which were allowed to be written. Only those which were allowed to be written were in fact, um, were, were, were in fact is what the Gemara is referring to. And therefore the last miracles that were allowed to be written was Purim, not Hanukkah. Now, you, so this, this Gemara is, is pregnant with a lot of meaning. There's a lot, of, there's a lot hidden inside here. There's a lot that needs unpacking in, in this Gemara. What, what does it mean that Hanukkah was not allowed to be written? So obviously it might mean refer to the Megillah's Chashmonaim, the Sefer Maccabim, not, not because it wasn't included, but it seems to be more than that. It seems to almost be that Hanukkah itself wasn't allowed to be written in the Mishnah as well. It's almost like the Gemara is referencing this idea that Hanukkah was above writing, it was above transcription. Why? Why, why would that be the case? So let's, let's examine the times for, for a moment. We're living in a very unusual time in the second base of the Migdash. We, we, we think about the first base of the Migdash and the second base of the Migdash being akin to each other and the, the return of the base of the Migdash was this remarkable stage and back to the second Commonwealth and it was anything but that. It was, it was really a very, very humble return. The Gemara describes many examples of this. So like, um, this, it doesn't require too much scholarship just to appreciate that there was this Vaisheni was terribly different in Source 15 as an example. Migdash Sheni Mi the Gemara says, you know, talks about the, the fire that came from heaven. Does, did that come in the second message? That the Gemara talks about, I'll be glorified. The idea is, is, is um, which is the, which, which uh, there's a certain gravitas referring to that. What does that mean? Why was the word, um, uh, the, why was the letter hey removed? 
There were five deficiencies in the second base of the Mikdash. There was no Ark of the Covenant. Right? The Kapoiris, the the angels weren't in the second base of the Mikdash. There was no heavenly fire upon the Mizbeach. Shechina, there was no cloud of glory expressing the divine presence in the base of the Mikdash. Ruach HaKodesh, there was no divine inspiration at the time. And there was no Urim um, to consult. The Kohen did not have the access to the divine in the same way as well. Um, and, uh, and the Gemara says that maybe they had it, but it didn't help them. The Gemara later on in Yuma says that in fact, that the idea of this miracle of the Ner Ma'aravi, you know, we always think about this, the Western candle that stayed lit wasn't really the Western candle, it was the second from the end, west of the easternmost. Um, with a um, candle which remained lit. The Gemara says that that miracle dissipated after the times of Shimon HaTzadik. When did Shimon HaTzadik live? It was the very beginning of the second base of Mikdash. So Shimon HaTzadik, after Shimon HaTzadik, then, then uh, that was the end of the, those miracles. So uh, everything we sort of imagine about these miraculous clouds and fire and burning th- and, and continual burning, all of that is a reference to Bais Risha and the first base of Mikdash. Second base of Mikdash, when the coin went into there wasn't an Aaron to throw the blood to. There was a rock on the floor. <laughs> that, that was the, the mission describes. But there was a whole different nation. There was Israel. What did they do? They, they had a base of Mikdash also. What, what, I don't understand. If this happened in Yehuda with the base of Mikdash, all this was happening. So why didn't the people from in, in Israel go to, to Yehuda? Okay, know. good question. So Dr. Huntington's got a very good question. Is that even during the first commonwealth, most of Israel didn't get to the base of Mikdash? Right, because of the guards along the border, the southern border between Israel and Judea. You're right, and they didn't have access. Why they weren't in access, why they didn't rebel against not having access, you can understand that their, their religious entropy, essentially, was a function of the fact they didn't have access to that, which is why they essentially drifted off and ultimately assimilated to the point of destruction. So there's a, there, there's a, lo- there's a, there's a lot to talk about, but that's a really a question that comes back to Sefer Melachim, Sefer Devei Yamim, which in itself is a Tanakh question. But for all intents and purposes, when you go post-Tanakh, and we get to the second base of Mikdash, so much has dissipated, there's nothing really left. And if you think about that, on the most basic level, that's what the Gemara is saying about Hanukkah. Lonit non means to say that it wasn't allowed to be written because there was no divine inspiration, there was no prophecy to write to encapsulate this, the, this miracle. But it's more than that as well. Let's think about this for, for, for a moment. The, there are two parts of Torah. There's the Torah Shebech Sav and the Torah Shebech Peh. And the rule is the following. If you have Torah Shebech Sav, you're not allowed to, to just write, say it Baal Peh. That's the rule. You're not allowed just to um, say things which you're not, 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 are not written. And vice versa. The oral Torah could not be written down. Why was the oral Torah not allowed to be written down? What was the loss? What was the concern about writing down the, the oral Torah? So much so, that when the Gomorrah gets in, Daf Samak tells us about when they actually, when Rebbe actually had to finally do it. And then later on when Ravasi, uh, Rav Ashi and Ravina had to redact the Gomorrah, it says, When the time came, they had to annul the Torah by writing it down. What was the nullification of the Torah? What was, what was so critical? What was at stake? What was the cost of this operation? Like, well, what did you lose? Now, for all intents and purposes, you gained. Now you have it in the bookshelf. What was that? Ah, so it says Torah. Well, there's many reasons. I mean, a lot of things before giving getting to, to, to that. To that, just worthwhile knowing. Anytime you write something down, it's misinterpreted, right? When you have a conversation with somebody, right, and you, you understand their tone of voice, you understand their body language, you have a real conversation, you have a real tradition from that person, then you understand what they're talking about. When you hear a tweet, 
You missed the whole boat, right? That's why all these battles had in, had in these di digital spheres with 140 characters and, uh, and memes. You're not getting anywhere. There's no, there's no discourse. There's no dialogue. There's all, it's only up to misinterpretation. When it comes down to, to real communication, real communication, you never resolve any fight on social media. It only uh, 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 gets it further. It only antagonizes the cause. You never resolve any uh, personal dispute in the family by sending a text. Never happened. No one's ever said, I'm sorry, and I feel, oh, I feel so bad, good now that you sent me a text. It has to happen in person, right? So there's something very, there's a great loss when you write things down. But more than that, says Tosis as well, is that in a certain sense, the, the Bible of the Jews, because it was written down, was adopted by everybody else, which is true, right? The Old Testament is three quarters of the Christian, of, of the, of the Christian Bible, right? The, the New Testament was the, the, the latter part of it. If you want just to just do word by word, chapter by chapter, the Old Testament is the major part of, the, of, of, of Christian theology. And when it comes to the Quran, well, the Quran had a different approach to things. You know, Muhammad kind of like, you know, copied and pasted the parts he liked. But nonetheless, I mean, he, 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 Islam was built on the Jewish and pagan tribes in the, in the Arabian Peninsula. So a lot of it came from Judaism, a lot of it came from the pagan practices around him when he, when he put um, Islam together in the 7th century. But be it as it may, the predominant text for, 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 the, for Islam is, of course, the Bible again. And why was that so? Because it was written down. In a certain sense, the spirit, the real aspect of who Judaism, what Judaism is, which is unique to Judaism, which could not be copied because unless you're a card-carrying member of the people you didn't have access to was... The Torah Shalpeh. The moment you write that down, it becomes accessible. The moment it becomes accessible, it's reinterpretable. It can be abrogated. It can be, it can be copied and pasted by other folks. And then, it be, then, then in a certain sense, we lose the, the beauty of what it, what it is. Which is why Rebbe understood that, yes, the diaspora is expanding. If we don't write it down, we are going to, people are not going to remember it at all. But so therefore, we'll, we'll have to take a huge cost for the program, which is the cost of others having it, others misinterpreting it, and even Jews misinterpreting it, right? that's w better than losing it altogether. So that's what Rebbe did. That's the Eislah, Soislah, Shem, Eferi, Torah, Secha. If that's the case, now, let, now let's re-examine re re things. When he wrote it down, he didn't write it all down. Rebbe did not write the entire Torah Shavar down. Let's, let's think about this. Why, why, let, let, so as examples, in the Mishnah, the Mishnah has many examples where there are pieces of the Torah Shavar Alpeh written down, which are not complete. So famous, famously, you'll see is, your example is, the, there's many times where the Gemara will say, this Mishnah and that Mishnah put together don't actually match. It doesn't make sense. The Gemara says, you know what? Ah, the Gemara says, you know what? The Mishnah is missing a piece here, and this is what it really meant to be because put the two together, you see that there's a contradiction. The contradiction yields an outcome which is clearly not A or B, but it's really C, and it was missing, and this is what really the tradition tells us. You know, what does that mean? Rebbe, Rebbe forgot that part. <laughs> Rebbe, when he was writing down, he didn't know that part. Right? There's other examples. The, 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 we're told that the, the Mishnahists are Ashirim b'makom echod and Aniyim b'makom acher. That they are rich in one place, there's a lot in one, de in, in one area, and there are neem, they're, they're impoverished, meaning there's very little in other areas. There's times where you have an ama or a tzni, where you have to, uh, uh, to amend the Mishnah. What, Rebbe didn't know all those things? Says, says Rav Hutner in his, in his first um, paragraph, his first essay in, in, in Pachad Yitzchak on, um, on Hanukkah, that Rebbe intentionally created the Torah Shah 
that required certain keys which were still oral, which means he wrote down the major headlines, the, the general headings of, of these ideas, but he required that you needed to have an oral tradition to unlock what was really going on, which is what the Gomorrah is really doing, essentially. is uh, trying to understand what was embedded, how can you, out of this, intuit the general picture of what Torah Shabbat was, with the missing pieces that he didn't put into it. And that's why the mission was fashioned as it was. If that's the case, then perhaps, maybe we could argue that Hanukkah falls into the missing pieces too. So as the end of, the end of uh, Rav Hutner's observation here, on the last page, take a look at this very beautiful observation in Rav Hutner's piece on Hanukkah's in, um, paragraph A. We're going to start from the semicolon, about eight lines up, which is the following observation. Even in the written oral law, there were spaces left open to cling on to the idea of it being oral. Like the tools that we described. And that's why he completely omitted the Chanukah episode. Chanukah remained the oral Torah of the oral Torah. <laughs> that makes sense? Chanukah remained orally transmitted even after the Torah was written down from oral to written. It became the oral Torah of the oral Torah, which means... When the Gemara says, what that means to say is, is that Rebbe intentionally left out pieces of it which were remaining oral. Why Hanukkah? Why was Hanukkah chosen? And that's precisely the point. Is in the wake of the disappearance of the, of the, of the Nevi'im, in the wake of the disappearance of explicit miracles, you may have at this point in time said, Judaism has been calcified, Judaism has stopped. Judaism is now an immutable, unchangeable, non-developing system. And that's not the case. In fact, it was exactly the opposite. Judaism now was robust. Judaism was expanding in its Torah Shabbat Peh. Chanukah was the first expression of the fact that sages, without any divine inspiration, were able to concretize a new festival which heretofore did not exist. And this is the greatest expression, in fact, of the Torah Shabbat Peh in action and in motion. And that's what Rav, Rav, Rav Rimon says in the end of his Sefer, which is really a beautiful Sefer. He came out of Hanukkah a couple of years ago. And he says in the, uh, the second last paragraph, Hanukkah remains eternally oral. There was a great danger on the oral Torah itself. Machmas gezeros yevonim neged shmiras mitzvahs limud Torah hator shvichsav nisharav vaftrugum aliyevonis. Already the Bible had already been translated into the Septuagint by Ptolemy. Af meach mesores shaveres baal peh hoisob esakona. What remained at the core of the attack was oral law. Ach lamrois hagzeros. Despite all this, all the decrees lerak shamesores loynius esakona. Not only was the Torah baal peh protected. It in fact expanded. And we celebrate a, a book or a time or an expression of Hashem in history which remained totally oral. 
which remain totally in our tradition rather than in our books. Chag Chanukah, and that's Chag Chanukah. That's a very profound perspective. Not that, by the way, the senses, not that, by the way, it was forgotten, not that there was any vendettas about different lines of the family. This was architected in such a way to remain the oral law because something's not lost when it remains oral. And that's what Chanukah is, which is why when we look to Chanukah today, we have to look deeper than even the Mishnah itself in order to be able to find it. And this, I think, is a tremendous perspective. Rabbi, I thank you so much for taking the time. May it be a Chanukah Sameach to us one and all.